Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. On Friday, January 13th, the city of Boston unveiled a bronze sculpture of the Reverend Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King. It's called The Embrace. It became very controversial. I'm not even going to tell you what people are saying about it at this point. Check out Leslie Jones on The Daily Show for that. But we do have a show already, uh, a show that we'd done a little while ago about public sculptures and how people react to them and how they're changing from the old model of a great man on a pedestal with a sword. So we are going to share that show with you today. As I say, we're not going to be dealing with the embrace, not so much. There are other people who can tell you things about that that we would never, ever say. Yes, we are going to talk about statues and monuments today. And I think maybe not in a way that you're used to. I I know that you've become familiar with and perhaps a little bit bored by the long series of debates uh, about statues and monuments that have consumed us at the very least since George Floyd, probably prior to that because of Dylan Roof, who we know visited a lot of Confederate um, statues and monuments before he committed his horrible atrocity in Charleston. So, yeah, it's on our minds. But I think as we've prepared for this show, we realized that we understood it less well than we thought. And we thought we would pass that kind of sensation along to you. So with us uh, here for the first segment is Aaron Thompson, professor of uh, art crime at John Jay College, author of Smashing Statues, The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments. Sue Mobley is director uh, of research at Monument Lab, where a national audit uh, of our of our nation's monuments has been done. We'll tell you a little bit more about the results of that. But Aaron Thompson, maybe to get us going, uh, I was struck by something that you've said in the past, that a monument is a little bit like a selfie in the sense that it's taken in order to give the best possible or the most flattering possible uh, representation of a certain subject in a certain way, sometimes with the goal also of obscuring things that might detract from that overall impression. Maybe you could say a little bit more. Very definitely. A lot of people I hear being worried that taking down a monument is going to remove history. But monuments aren't history lessons. They're they're more like propaganda. So it's a very different debate about whether we should take down a false version of the past. And sometimes that that's a shiny, happy version of the past. You know, nobody's saying that 
Disneyland should be burnt to the ground because it didn't really work out that way for Cinderella or whatever. But if you look a little deeper at a lot of American monuments, they are presenting a very false version of the past that still has effects on how we treat each other today. And I think that we would be able to move forward as a society towards true quality better if we didn't have a lot of the monuments that are currently up. Yeah. So um, and I want to also just talk about that whole idea, too, about propaganda and agendas, because one of the things that fascinated me about your work is that we think we know what the agenda is, and we don't always. And I love stuff like this. So I'm going to ask you to, to tell briefly uh, the story of the Confederate soldier statues in, in the pose known as Parade Rest that began to crop up around the South, I think in the latter part of the 20th century, uh, and, and explain who was paying for them and why they really wanted them. Right. So when I started writing the book, it was in part because a lot of, of people were saying, all right, I see that there are some segments of society, some Americans whom these statues insult or say are less than human, monuments that honor the Confederacy. But you have to consider they honor my people, my ancestors. So I, I started to wonder, is this really true? Do statues of um, Confederate soldiers really, are they there to honor people who fought low-ranking soldiers in the Civil War? And what I found is that uh, the great majority of these statues uh, were put up starting in the, the turn of the century, late 19th, early 20th centuries. Uh, if you look at local newspapers, like what else is going on around the dedication times, you find that they go up during times of labor unrest and that the speeches uh, by the people who paid for them, by factory owners, managers, bosses, et cetera, the elite of various small towns across the South, that are praising the soldier not for his courage or rebellion. They're praising them for their obedience uh, and are putting in these little hit, hit side lessons about you should all seek, should continue to obey your betters, not your commanding officers now, but your bosses in the factories. And so these statues were put up by people who wanted to spread not the myth of the rebellious hero, but the myth of the obedient lower class man who paid attention to what he was told to do. Right. And this is why these statues are have the visual form that they do. So it's not somebody, you know, marching off to war or fighting or dying or whatever. It's just someone standing there in what by looking at military manuals of the period I found was a very particular pose known as parade rest, which was the pose you took when you were listening to orders from your drill instructor. So some of the which some of these new yeah, were forbidden to to move or speak. Yeah. So some of these new Confederate statues where they're carrying Amazon boxes, I think that could, kind of gives the whole game away. Um, <laughs> but um, so uh, I want to switch over to Sue Mobley for a second, a director of research at Monument Lab. Uh, first of all, welcome to the show. And second of all, tell us about the audit. How does one do an audit uh, of a whole nation's monuments? Um, very carefully with a lot of hands. And thank you for having me on the show. I want to follow up on what Aaron had to say, but I will get to that in a second. Um, in order to do the National Monument Audit, we collected databases from uh, state historic preservation offices, tribal historic preservation offices, cities, um, the Smithsonian, the National Park Service, and created a sort of pool of potential sources that would have monument data. We looked at 
over 540 different um, potential sources, assess them for which had um, the most information, the most likely to hold monuments, to hold data about them other than simply existing, um, and created a, a mega data set of about 500,000 records that we then um, examined and tweaked algorithms and descriptions to arrive at a list of about 50,000 conventional monuments, things that uh, most of us would recognize as monuments in the world um, all across the country. And that process of, of tweaking and linking um, was often the process of making databases talk to each other so that a record that has a lot of information from the Smithsonian's Save Outdoor Sculpture about what the material was, who sponsored it, who funded it, who's caring for it, is matched with um, open street maps where the information on the background of the monument might not be there, but the location data is top-notch, which the Smithsonian misses. Um, and each of those is... Um, in a searchable map um, that is available on the Monument Lab website. So the people can explore the Monument landscape scape in their town or across the country um, and look for patterns and look for uh, individual things to add or um, to explore while also um, providing sort of the basis for our exploration and our key findings about the landscape overall. When we look for uh, patterns at a very gross level, um, one thing becomes clear. I'm looking at the, the top uh, 20 um, represented people uh, in this audit. Uh, it starts with Abraham Lincoln at number one and William Shakespeare at number 20. In between, I believe we have one woman and one person of color. Martin Luther King's at number four. Uh, Joan of Arc is at number 18. And it's all white guys beyond that. Um, I, I guess I'm not particularly surprised, Sue, but there might be something else that you might want to say about that. Um, it's really overwhelmingly white guys up until the top 50. Um, there are a handful of women and a handful of people in color, but the monument landscape is unsurprisingly um, looks the same on the national scale as it does in the average town square. That is, it is white, it is male, it is wealthy. Um, it is overwhelmingly represented by a man on a horse. Um, it is violent. And even the um, the first woman listed, Joan of Arc, is on there for a reason. She's on there because she became the symbol of World War One, and so she is frequently seen on one of those long lists of rank and file soldiers. That is how, beyond the um, the parade rest Confederates, how we display the rank and file. Um, as a list of names while the generals are seen riding into battle on a horse. Right. You could sort of understand this a little bit in the sense that, um, you know, I mean, I don't know. If you don't somehow or other give some kind of glorious context to the idea of fighting in wars, 
most of us are going to be conscientious objectors. I mean, it's not really an appealing idea to a lot of us to grab a, a rifle and a bayonet and go out there and maybe get killed in the process. So it's probably not too surprising that these statues amount to kind of a pep talk about that. But there may be other things behind it, too. And, and Aaron, I want to swing back over to you because even though uh, Abraham Lincoln is kind of rocking it out at number one there, one thing that you've pointed out is there are Abraham Lincoln statues and there are Abraham Lincoln statues, and they're not all created equal. Uh, and maybe you want to mention uh, the one uh, that's in D.C. that has been somewhat controversial pretty much from the moment it, it went up, pretty much from the moment that none other than Frederick Douglass laid eyes on it. Yeah, so this uh, is a statue known as the Freedmen's Memorial or sometimes the Emancipation Memorial in a park in D.C., and it shows Abraham Lincoln standing there uh, holding a scroll symbolizing the Emancipation Proclamation, handing it to a kneeling black man who has been newly freed from slavery. Uh, Frederick Douglass spoke at the unveiling of his statue and said in impromptu remarks at the unveiling and then published um, a letter to a newspaper soon after saying, that this is essentially ridiculous. This was um, misrepresenting what had actually just happened, namely that a hugely important part of the Union victory were the black soldiers who fought in the U.S. colored troops. Uh, and they fought and obtained their own freedom. They didn't just sort of kneel there and beg for it to be as a gift. Uh, and Douglas and many others since have recognized that this way of portraying history, of freedom as a gift, uh, is to try and shape the the present and the future of a continued subordination of Black Americans. Uh, and it's another thing I hear all, over and over again is why have monuments suddenly become controversial? Why are people so sensitive now and they've existed for so long? But that's not true either. Um, people who have looked deeply and thought about monuments have been angry about them for for decades, for as long as they've existed. And I think it's only now that these very rational points of view are bubbling their way up into a broader public consciousness. Probably worth noting uh, that the person on his knees uh, is, I think, based uh, on a, a man named Archer Alexander, who in fact uh, had been a slave, uh, had escaped, uh, was kidnapped back into slavery and re-escaped. He did this so he escaped from slavery twice with no help from Abraham Lincoln. Uh, so it was there's something even more troubling about that idea that he's down on his knees thanking. Right. Uh, and and um, the sculptor of that monument, Thomas Ball, in his autobiography, writes about sculpting it and says that he had hired, um, I believe, an African man in his studio in Italy where he's working to pose for him as a model, but then fired him because it was, quote, too unpleasant. Uh, to have to be in such close proximity to him. So he modeled the body on his own. Uh, so do we really want uh, art in our public space representing our, our citizens made by people who who thought themselves superior to them? Seems a little gross to me. Right. So let's, indeed. Uh, so let's swing back over to you, Sue. Uh, you know, I mean, a, another aspect of this that I think is reflected in Aaron's work as well uh, is, I mean, for example, I think 80% of the black men in the North who were of plausible fighting age 
fought in the Civil War. Uh, but, I mean, if you were to go around or go, go through your audit looking at Civil War statues, I'm guessing that that reality isn't really particularly clear. And in general, um, monuments are not, as Aaron was saying at the top of the show, necessarily a really good way to learn about history. Can you elaborate on that a little? I mean, monuments are a terrible way to learn about history. If we look at Civil War monuments, there's about 5,900 in our database. Um, Of those, 3% acknowledge the Confederate defeat. 1% acknowledge slavery. If you look at the orders of secession, all of them mention slavery. They mention it a lot. It's, you know, state right to slavery over and over again. They're very clear about what they were fighting for. The process of erecting those monuments is also the process of erasing that history. And I think when we look at, you know, the the Lincoln is a, a particularly egregious example. You know, it erases the 170,000 black soldiers who served for the Union, my great-grandfather having been one of them, um, Carolina 33rd. It also erases the 1.5 million self-emancipating people who walked off of plantations, um, who sabotaged the production of the South and allowed the North to win the war. There's a lot of work being done there, even in sort of seemingly innocuous portrayals, to erase people's history and the role of people, um, collectives, not the sort of guy on a pedestal, um, figuratively and literally as the real agents of history. Yeah, and so let's let's stay with this for a second. And, and I guess sort of my question to you, Sue, and, and, and po- probably to you too, Aaron, but let's start with you, Sue, is what's the response? Is the response to build more, better monuments? Uh, or, I mean, it seems that there's just such a preponderance, such an overwhelming kind of problem uh, of monuments that already exist that don't really tell the story. And I don't know if you could ever build enough monuments to do anything to correct that. Or is it just to think about monuments differently? Or how are you thinking about this, Sue? I mean, I think I am, I am, we are uh, organizationally thinking about this in terms of creating spaces for more stories um, and creating new concepts of, of what a monument is and how it appears in public. And most of what Monument Lab does is to work with artists and organizers and activists and educators across the country to think of ways, work on prototyping ways to tell richer, more contested histories um, in ways that are relevant to place. And I think that that's perhaps the the element that is often hard to get at when we talk about what should be done overall is that places have unique histories and unique stories. And in order to tell them, um, in order to not do sort of the retroactive equivalent of cranking out um, Confederate soldiers slash Union soldiers, depending on how you painted them um, in the late 20th century, is to create spaces, means, resources, Um, for communities to tell their own stories differently and more richly and to hear each other across place. Right now, I'm working with 10 teams um, across the country as part of a project called Regeneration. And each of the teams is telling the story of their place, telling a story that's missing from our overarching narratives. And they are very different 
places and very different teams um, telling very different stories, but they are finding each other in those stories. So that a group that is working on restoring the public memory and honoring children who died in a residential school in Rapid City are finding that they have common ground with a group that is working on telling the story of the Battle of Blair Mountain in West Virginia and the erasure of labor history from the American narrative. Hmm. When we tell richer histories, when we have the space to tell stories in public, we have the capacity to connect to each other. When we insist upon one story that comes from the top down and that leaves no room for our humanity to exist, then all we can do is receive that story or fight it. So I yeah. think there's a lot more room for us to find each other yeah. in our stories. You know, as uh, Aaron, as Sue is talking about that, I'm thinking of, and I may have the place wrong in my head. You'll straighten me out on this if I do. Uh, was it Houston where they had our contemporary artists respond to one of these older and perhaps more problematic monuments? Yes. So the Houston Museum of African American Culture is um, so far, uh, was the first, and I think it's so far the only um, specifically African-American cultural institution to have, as I like to put it, rehomed a Confederate monument. And they're doing really incredibly interesting things with it, including uh, commissioning contemporary artists to respond to it. And they can do what they want. They can destroy it if they want. Um, I was just back in touch with the CEO of the museum who's saying that you told me that their next plan is they're going to maybe even sell off some pieces of it. Uh, he's hoping that people who really want to defend Confederate monuments will pay, you know, a million dollars for a thumb or something so they can, <laughs> so they can quote unquote, save that piece and then help fund the museum. Uh, but I think it's just an example of how many really interesting creative things can be done with monuments instead of just, do we keep them up? Do we take them down? Do we put another dude on the horse once we've taken down this dude off the horse? Right. I think one artist did a video of themselves talking to the monument, uh, kind of having a dialogue, which I, I thought was kind of a fast, or I guess it'd be a pretty one-sided conversation. But still, uh, I thought that was a, a fascinating way to respond. So, Sue, yeah. I mean, you know, just to go back to that and the, the stuff that you're talking about and the, the 10 teams that you're talking about. Does this always involve a monument the way we think of a monument? You drive into town, you stop at the town green, there's something up there on a pedestal, or are we really talking about something that maybe is a little bit, that exists maybe in an entirely different space? It depends. Um, it depends on the team. So in Montgomery, Alabama, the Morup campus is building on sort of a, a traditional monument form. Um, Michelle Browder's Mothers of Gynecology is a sculpture of three enslaved women who were used by J. Marion Sims in early gynecological experiments. And Michelle has welded these women, these figures, out of um, gynecological equipment. Um, and that is part of their monument. But the, the true monument is the campus that's being built around it to hold space to talk about how reproductive health, reproductive freedom has been a struggle uh, in the United States, particularly for women of color from the beginning and remains one um, in a different way than is true for white women and in a way that needs to be centered 
if we want to build towards justice. The statue serves a purpose. The campus serves a much broader one. We also have projects that are not going to produce a sort of traditional structure at all. Um, they may use augmented reality um, to create a pathway through the desert that connects um, histories of the Dineta um, and, and creates some zones that are public and private so that histories and legacies can be honored but also protected. So what that's, things look like depends on who's making them and to what end. And that's probably as it should be. Yes, yes, agree. Uh, Sue Mobley is director of research at the Monument Lab. Thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with a little bit more of Aaron Thompson after this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, we're talking about statues and monuments today. Aaron Thompson is still with us, professor of art crime at John Jay College, author of Smashing Statues, The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments. Aaron, I know that you're, you were trained as a classicist, so the idea of getting rid of statues, uh, of really kind of pulping them down to, to rubble, uh, is not that unfamiliar or even strange an idea. And you also point out that Early in the history uh, of the United States and prehistory of the United States, it wasn't that unusual, too. Uh, I think you pointed out that we had got a George III statue, which we almost immediately, for obvious reasons, because the price of his love was a price we weren't willing to pay, we wanted to get rid of. Yeah, the very first uh, equestrian statue, do not have a horse statue, we had uh, lasted a whole seven years before we uh, tore it down, melted the lead it was made out out of into bullets and use them to fight the king's army. 
Um, that's that's teaching them a lesson. So uh, also there are these. I mean, some of these stories are hilarious until you really think about what they mean and they get less hilarious. But but maybe genuinely funny is the story of this early statue of George Washington in which he's both jacked and jowly uh, and wearing some kind of Greco-Roman outfit. Tell us about that. Yes. Yeah, so uh, America is so such a young nation that you can really track uh, the evolution of the idea of what does a statue of a of a leader look like, and the first American born sculptor to make a big public monument of an American public figure was a man named Horatio Grunau, who was commissioned by Congress to carve a statue of George Washington to put in the Capitol building, and he just totally screwed it up. Uh, he he d- decided to carve something that had a half-naked Washington in a Roman toga sitting in a throne, and it was installed at great cost in around 1840, and everyone just decided they did not like it. It's it's a fairly ridiculous sculpture. It's on display in the Smithsonian Museum of American History now. I recommend going to check them out. And in part, it's because he looks silly, right? It was a portrait head, so elderly George Washington, but then the the jowls morph into a six pack um, to show his power. But in in larger part, as I argue in the book, it people didn't like it because there was no route that they could see. The statue wasn't inspirational to them. It made it seem like Washington was chosen by divine favor to become president, rather than. This idea that um, you can work your way up, that anybody can become president. So we had to try again to invent uh, what we wanted leaders to look like. And these people, the senators, the congressmen didn't just say they didn't like it. They actually kicked the statue out of the rotunda of the congressional building and um, put it outside and then put it in a museum. So my argument there is that it removal of a statue happens pretty smoothly when the people who are offended by it, who consider it insulting, are people in power. The only difference of what we've been seeing the last couple of years is that the people who are saying this statue is insulting to me are people who don't have the power to to remove it officially. Um, and so we're seeing other ways of, of taking action. Yes. And, and there's quite a bit of pushback around this, even against you, uh, who you are obviously a very nice person, uh, but at least one person does not think that you are nice. Cat, this is A1 we're going to play right now. Uh, here's somebody very familiar to many people talking about Aaron. Nowhere does anyone in authority seem interested in protecting our history and protecting our public spaces from nihilists like Professor Thompson and the mobs she commands. Uh, first of all, please do not send your mob after me, Aaron. Uh, now that now that we know you command one, <laughs> you crazy nihilist, don't send your mob after me. So that's that's Tucker Carlson. I mean, I this, it's like they think you're dangerous or something. I, react to that a little bit. I always joke about that that the only nihilists I know are my kids, and they don't even listen to me about bedtime. So I'm certainly not commanding. Um. Anyway, I, Tucker Carlson and a great number of other people got a bit outraged about me when I retweeted a video of a statue of Columbus in the St. Paul State Capitol being toppled and made a joke about how, as a professor who studies the deliberate destruction of cultural heritage, I would point out that if they used a chain instead of rope, it wouldn't go a bit faster. 
Um, so, so people chose to take that as me advocating for every statue to be torn down or something like that. I don't know. Uh, and what, what the, this whole brouhaha of that viral tweet caused me to want to write this book because there are so many people arguing in the mentions, um, saying things that just weren't true or, or asking questions that I thought more people would have already known the answers to, like what's so wrong with Columbus or, you know, civilized people never remove statues, et cetera. I thought, okay, I can, I can answer some of those questions. So, yeah, and, and another part of this, too, and I think it's worth making clear, particularly just the way a, a few things were worded just here, is that it turns out rarely are statues, uh, you know, melted down and turned into bullets to fire at the British or, or dist- fully destroyed in that way, that monuments tend to get moved or, or maybe slightly disassembled or something. I, I think a Connecticut Columbus might be one of the rare examples of something that kind of got trashed. Yes. So I made a giant, very dorky spreadsheet tracking down the fate of every single monument that left its pedestal after the death of George Floyd. And because I wanted to know, you know, there's all these news stories with monuments being loaded onto trucks and driven off. And I I wanted to know where are those trucks going? And it turns out the only permanent, irrevocable destruction of a monument was about a serving platter sized portrait of Columbus was chipped off the side of a monument to Italian-American immigrants in Connecticut, uh, and they put in an, an Italian flag instead. Uh, but everything else is has either been re-put up. Um, there is a statue of Columbus in Connecticut that was beheaded uh, and then was repaired and, and put back in place, um, or has been moved to a slightly less prominent location, like instead of the the in front of the courthouse, it's in a historic battlefield or something. Or, but the the fate of most of them is that they're just in storage, um, waiting for potential redeployment. Um, so it's not so much a great falling of the statues, it's more like a, the great reshuffling is what I call it. You know, all the all the way through preparing for the show, I've had that little bit from Hamilton about who lives, who dies, who tells your story stuck in my head. And the stories that you tell of the manner in which some of these projects are conceived and then managed and manipulated and the contributions of certain people to those projects obscured is just kind of amazing. So maybe we're talking about, particularly because our eyes are on the U.S. Capitol these days for other reasons, uh, the, the the freedom um, the freedom statue that, that sits atop the Capitol, that was put atop the Capitol, uh, and, and the fact that Jefferson Davis was the kind of overseeing person for a, a statue celebrating freedom, which is kind of amazing. But there's so much more to the story, which uh, you tell quite eloquently. Uh, and getting from that particular piece of the story uh, from a number of scholars, including Vivian Free, who wrote a book, great book called Art and Empire about the whole artistic program of the U.S. Capitol. But the, if you go to D.C. today, you from all over town, if you can see the Capitol building, you can see on the top of it, on the very peak of the dome, a gigantic statue of a woman representing freedom. And it was uh, sculpted by one artist uh, whose designs were overseen by Jefferson Davis. So future president of the Confederacy at this point, he was the Secretary of War, and since there was not yet a war, um, they had to find something for him to do, so he was overseeing the refurbishment of the Capitol building and its decoration of art. And he was on the warpath to prevent 
any signs of emancipation or any criticism of slavery. And so when the artist submitted his design for the Statue of Freedom, she was wearing a particular type of, of slouchy, bulbous-tipped hat, known as the Peleus or the Liberty Cap. Imagine what the Smurfs wear, that one. Um, and Davis sent it back to the drawing board and said, no, 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 because Davis knew that that type of hat was given by the ancient Romans to enslaved people when they were emancipated, when they're made free. Uh, and he said, that's not appropriate for American freedom. American freedom um, is only for those who are born free. Because he didn't want anybody even having the faintest idea that people who are currently enslaved in America should be free. Uh, so if you see today, she's wearing this sort of vacancy showgirl uh, headdress made out of uh, the feathers of an eagle and stars in there and et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, uh, yeah, meanwhile, and I just our time is limited. And I want to make sure we get this <laughs> in. There was a black man who worked on this project, uh, who was, uh, I think, in the employ of the kind of overall artist for this. Uh, th- this was project. enslaved by, yeah, it's enslaved by. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Uh, and so tell that story uh, because it's just kind of amazing how his role in this was handled, and particularly how his compensation for this was handled. Handled. Yeah. So a man named Philip Reed. Uh, helped cast the statue. So another artist, um, Clark Mills, was put in charge of, of taking the model of the statue and making into bronze. Uh, and um, he owned a number of people, including a man named Philip Reed, uh, who worked for like over a year, seven days a week on this statue, was paid by the federal government, but only got to keep the money he earned on Sundays. Um, the rest of the his pay went to his owner, Clark Mills. And so just to imagine the irony of working to create a symbol of the freedom that you don't have. Uh, and shortly after the completion of this statue, Philip Reed was emancipated uh, by the Declaration of Emancipation from the District of Columbia. And he got to collect $41 for the Sundays he had worked on the statue. Um, and uh, just the thought of of who's concealed when we're looking at these big, uh, bright statues uh, is very interesting to me and what I tried to tell in the, the book. So last question. Um, we're going to have to skip over Stone Mountain and Gutzon Borglund. Maybe we'll do a whole show about it because he's a Connecticut guy. It's it's both, once again, dark and hilarious at the same time. Uh, uh, I could not agree more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, so you, you'll have to come back and help us out with a, a future episode on that. But I'd just like to ask you kind of a similar thing to what I was asking Sue, which is, where do we go from here with monuments? I mean, we can talk about ones we might like to see removed. But but the the role of the monument in society, it feels like it needs to change somehow. How, how would you change it? Well, I am not the czar of monuments, thank goodness, because I'd probably just pull them all down and put up swing sets instead so my kids could have something to do. Um, but I think what they should be is they should truly be public art. We think they are monuments, are public art, but in reality, they're put up by people who are rich enough to pay for them and powerful enough to assure them a place in public. So I think communities should have the power to decide what they want to symbolize their aspirations, what they want to inspire them, uh, both what they want to keep and what they want to put up. So it should be a a community by community decision. 
All right, we're going to stop there. But this is fascinating stuff, and really, we've just scratched uh, the, the surface of some of the just amazing stuff that's in this book. Aaron Thompson, professor of art crime at John Jay College, author of Smashing Statues, The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments. Thanks to you. And then when we come back, we are going to talk about the search that's already going on for ideas about how we might commemorate uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And time to say some thank yous. First of all, thank you to Kat Pastor, our technical producer. She's uh, keeping us going in all the right ways and right directions here. Uh, this, produ- this episode was produced by our senior producer, uh, Lily Tyson. Uh, we are going to talk, spend the last part uh, of this show talking a little, about a little bit about a monument that doesn't exist now. Uh, still with us, Aaron Thompson, professor of art crime at John Jay College, author of Smashing Statues, The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments. Uh, and then uh, also joining us is Kristen Urquiza, uh, co-founder and chief activist uh, of Marked by COVID. Thanks for joining this conversation. Thanks for having me. So maybe just set the stage a little bit. I mean, memorializing a pandemic is difficult to do. Uh, For example, after 1918, I think people tended to celebrate the armistice more and the end of a, uh, a flu epidemic less partly just because they were so traumatized by the flu epidemic and wanted something to be happy about. So how do we even begin thinking about a COVID-19 memorial? And medical historians think that was a mistake. I mean, I often think about had the 1918 pandemic been more than literally a paragraph in my history books, we might have had a healthier relationship with what could be possible um, if an outbreak uh, spread even further. Um, my father died from uh, COVID on June 30th of 2020. And Mark by COVID was launched both as a place to help folks that were like me experiencing this loss, this loss in isolation and the, and the you know politicized nature of it, but also to start thinking about commemoration and ensuring that this time didn't end up becoming um, just another sentence in the history books, the time that we were all on Zoom together. No, in fact, this is a period of time in which we've lost a million lives in two years, that in Connecticut, that's you know over 11,000 people. And um, I don't want to live in a place and in a time where mass death is normalized. So marked by COVID, we've been thinking about how do we both um, recognize this time and create enduring mom- monuments that are really informed from the perspective of those who have lost the most, people who have lost loved ones. And I think that creates a completely different formula um, than how we have approached memorialization before. Like, what does democratized memorials look like? And I think that for COVID, we have an opportunity to not only um, attempt that, uh, but use it as sort of a model for future conversations on how we address um, public health crises and and who gets um, who has to who has to shoulder the brunt of it and shoulder that first. As we know, um, this pandemic has been experienced 
in ways that have been so uneven. The elderly community, people of color, folks already living on the margins, really kind of taking the brunt of it throughout these various waves. And that is part of the conversation that we want to make sure is preserved um, as we think about how to memorialize this awful tragedy. Right. Uh, so, and, and to that point, you know, one way that we sometimes think about memorializing a large group of people is to put their names on a wall or what Myelin did uh, with the <laughs> Vietnam Memorial. I would think the problem with this would be, first of all, COVID-19 isn't over. We don't know when it's going to be over. There could be people dying of COVID-19 or some ver- variant of co- SARS-CoV-2 10 years from now. And also, it's just a lot of names. I mean, that's probably not going to work as well as something else might. It's it's absolutely not. And I, I can remember a year ago, we were already wrestling with this this equation and had done the sort of behind the me- on the back of the napkin math. And we're like, well, if we were to have sort of a myelin type memorial on the mall, it would it would wrap around the mall several times already. And that was at half a million deaths. So you're absolutely right. We cannot um, sort of take that approach. But I think something that exists now that didn't exist in you know the 1980s um, was the AR component, um, augmented reality, the internet, using technological solutions that can help um, really create this database of who we lost and have both a touchable, in real life type monument that we think about, but then also um, AR components that can be accessible both in an individual level or with technology that's there on site for folks who happen to stumble upon um, a particular memorial. So one thing that we're thinking about is is um, how do we marry those two pieces and also not make it necessarily in situ, right, where there is just one central location because, you know, this happened, all, this happened everywhere and nowhere at the same time, right? And we want to be able to make sure that there are, um, you know, whether you want to call them centers or altars or monuments in places across the country where people can access this sort of memorial of memorials. And so we're thinking about COVID as both something physical in the real world, as well as an augmented reality where we can crowdsource and bring together those stories, those pictures, and those names of those that we lost because you are absolutely right. For a person like me and the people who are like me that have lost a loved one, seeing that name, Mark Urquiza, seeing that name um, is so essential in the recognition that these these numbers are are, are people who... It's not my loss. It is our loss as a community, as a country, as a society. And we need to help humanize um, this tragedy for all of us, those who need to um, have that moment of collective grief. And also for folks who have been much more, um, who have had a completely different pandemic experience than than I have had. All right. So, um 
Yeah, I love the AR idea. I, I was last time I was in Rome, I went to the Domus Aurea, which is this ridiculous Nero house that is being restored archaeologically. But they have you put on Oculus goggles and you see how the house probably did look in its day. And that's about as old as something gets. And you can use AR with it. Um, uh, you know, Aaron, I'm going to ask you to just sort of react to some of this. You Now you're hearing the kind of forward thinking and, and as Kristen says, democratized thinking about a monument. What's your reaction to all that? Well, to pick up with with Rome, where I always love to think about Rome as a classicist, uh, you'll see a lot of memorials and gravestones that are carved with my name was whatever, Cacaelia Metalla, uh, remember me, because they, the ancient Romans thought that in your afterlife, you would you would get sort of a shot of, of happiness, you would be, you'd feel better in the afterlife if someone was thinking of you, someone who was alive. And our memorials often seem to carry this idea forward that the point of a memorial is to think about someone individual. Uh, but it's also an important function of a memorial to change how you in the living world continue to live in, in the future. And I think a COVID-19 memorial is going to be really difficult to to put together because we haven't come to any sort of agreement about what should, if anything, change about the world to prevent a tragedy like this from occurring. You know, we can't even disagree with each other about whether or not we should wear masks. So how are we supposed to agree about what was important to take from, from COVID? But it's precisely these type of conversations and arguments we should be having. And so a, a project to make a memorial is going to lead to a lot of really valuable conversation, I think. Yeah. So, Kristen, I've got less than two minutes left, but I think her point's a really important one, that if we wanted to put up a statue of Tony Fauci tomorrow, there'd be pushback, even though he's obviously a guy who's dedicated his life to to saving other lives. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, Kristen, it goes back to the original point you made about post-World War One, right? If you don't acknowledge it somehow, you compound the problem of people not thinking of it as real in their heads. That's exactly right. And I think the thing that we can all agree on, agree upon, it's irrefutable that over a million people lost their lives. And to your point, many more will continue to die. I just went to a, uh, a, a commemoration of the AIDS quilt coming back to San Francisco a couple of weeks ago. And in the corner, there was still a panel making section there. So it's never too late or too early to start sort of continuing the memorialization process. And I think part of this will be a living memorial. And that's why we're really focused not on a single individual, but the um, people, all of the people who have died because that has been lost in the conversation over the course of the last couple of years due to the political nature of this. And so we are working to depoliticize this by really focusing on the loss of life. And I think that from there is the grounding upon which we can start to build consensus about what this time meant and how we want to use those learnings, that lived experience of the unvarnished truth of death to pass on to future generations, um, those lessons learned so that we're better prepared for next time. All right, Kristen, we have to stop there. Kristen Urquiza, co-founder and chief uh, activist of Marked by COVID. Thanks also to Aaron Thompson and everybody else. When the time it is sweet It won't matter who your God is Or the tone of your skin 
who you choose to share your love with. Oh God bless America, the heart of man. Oh God bless America. The heart of